You're listening to Deep Biscuit, a deep dive into the history and cultural significance of Limp Biscuit. This is part two of our discussion about the three-year rise of fame between 1997 and 2000, and the peripheral effects of the band's legacy. And now it's time for a deep dive. I think a valuable lesson was learned by the industry and and the music industry, and the, and the music industry is not unique in this. Um, uh, for example, uh, WWE. Uh, there was a time when Vince McMahon didn't have the control over his wrestling stars the way he does now. Um, Which, and, and you know, may I just say that it, it's so interesting to see how, on the one hand, you see why having more control does help mm-hmm. him and his product. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they'll never again be able to achieve the same heights Absolutely. culturally because mm-hmm. you'll never have stars as big as Steve Austin Hulk Hogan and yeah. The Rock. Well, and well, and what I, what I think of in particular, I'm glad you brought all them up. But what I think of particular is the rivalry, the rivalry between um, uh, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, which, I mean, it looked good on on uh, uh, you know when the show was on, but it was actually it bled over into real life. The two of them didn't like each other. They were constantly in odds with one another. Basically, Shawn Michaels perceived Bret Hart as a threat. And there were times when Bret Hart was on the stick going, you know, talking, bad-mouthing Vince McMahon, bad-mouthing the crowd, and he was making legit criticisms of of what was going on. (laughs) I mean, Bret Hart once said, America has a problem with racism. (laughs) And he goes, you don't got to pick and fight with me in order to figure out whether or not that's true. And when he did that, he was sticking to his heel narrative. But he said something that was unequivocally true, that like racism has been one of racism has been like the justifying ideology of capitalism in the United States. Um, and 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 it's a th- and there's something similar that happened. The, the music industry flew too close to the sun for a moment when it comes to the what I should say is the, 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 the concept of the music festival flew too close to the sun. And there were other things that were on the horizon for the music industry that would basically make it so that those types of risks could be never taken again. You know, now we have, there's more musical festivals. There's more music festivals than ever. There's Bonnaroo and there's, uh, festivals have pretty much replaced the idea of concerts. Yeah. Yeah. At least when it comes to massive touring acts, national touring acts, international touring acts. Um, and you don't hear about these awful things happening anymore. And it's because everything is so controlled. Um, and there's, so much money now that doesn't come from necessarily industry sales, but instead from like cell phone sponsorships and 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 uh, and uh, soda sponsorships and so on and so forth, you know. Um, and so, and, and then also what happened is, you know, the, the revenue from actual physical album sales was about to get drained out because Napster was about to happen. And so the the. The music industry, at least in the United States, really faced a reckoning with itself. It's you know, for, you know, it, it it was having uh, death, it was having sexual assault, and then on top of that, a few years later, they were losing money left and right, and um, and it's it's the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that would never be allowed to happen again, and it's uh, but it also means that we can't ever have. Like Tom Morello, Tom Morello commented on on Woodstock '99, saying, "Yeah, there were bad actors, and yeah, the media." you know, you know, turned a blind eye to what was happening. And yeah, the organizers of the festival made some serious, huge mistakes. He said, but the vast majority of people that were there were having the time of their lives. And uh, I'm going to, I don't know that that sort of 
uh, uh, exalting experience as possible now, not at South by Southwest, you know, not at, I mean, there are people that are going to tell you it was awesome, but you know, when you're paying 120 bucks for parking in Austin, I mean, how awesome is it? <laughs> well, and you know, I'll, um, I'll touch on this later. The kind of like the greater wrap up of this episode comes later, mm. but, um, there's something to be said about the kind of like distorted view of being up on stage looking at the crowd as opposed to being the crowd looking mm-hmm. up at the people on stage, right? And that mm-hmm. that's a universal mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Tom Morello said it, they were like, having the time of their right, lives. Like, but how did he really know? From, from, from the air-conditioned fucking misted stage? Yeah. yeah like where he gets, he gets to go backstage and like sit in a cooled room with like mm-hmm. a a cooler of too much water. Yeah, I'm sure that everything looked great from his perspective. And, and even someone like Tom Morello, who's like a true, like, you know, champion of the people as much as he, he can works, be. He works harder than most rich people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it, even he is not innocent of being disillusioned from his perspective on stage as opposed to being the one in the crowd looking to the stage. Great point. So with all of that said, man, 1999, huge year for Limp Bizkit. Um really set them up for what was about to be an even bigger year. So let's jump right into 2000 Mm -hmm. in a section that at this point, I'm just calling it welcome to the culture. (laughs) Uh, Hot dog. What is the name of the album? I know I'm saying Chocolate Starfish and the hot dog flavored water. Yeah. Yeah, I've just been calling it hot dog. (laughs) Uh, Debuts number one on the billboard charts. 400,000 copies sold the first day. 1,054,511 sold the first week. The largest first week sales debut for a rock album ever still to this day. The 17th largest first week sales debut for any album ever still to this day. Ladies and gentlemen, Limp Biscuit has arrived. And brother, it would not last long. You said it. So here we have a band whose infamy has been fueled like a rocket ship riding a tsunami wave. The concerts are huge. The sound is everywhere. Woodstock 99 has made them the stuff of legends. Limp Bizkit wrote a song for Mission Impossible 2. Fred Durst is a bona fide pop star and now the vice president of Interscope Records. Limp Bizkit is a TRL mainstay. Fred is rumored to be dating Britney Spears. Yeah. Eminem famously doesn't want to sit next to Carson Daly and Fred Durst <laughs> at the MTV Awards. The list goes on. But how did it really get to this point? Well, first of all, this is considered the most profitable era in the music industry's existence. Yeah. Albums are routinely selling for 18 to 20 bucks each and selling millions per week. So the major labels, obviously, were ensuring their cash cows were featured everywhere. Uh, second, this album was released not even a year after Significant Others. So Limp Bizkit, for better or worse, felt it was necessary to strike while the iron was hot, as we touched on. Yeah. And lastly, going up again, bringing up a previous point, Fred's lyrics have at this point become so fully self-referential to the point where his songs are almost entirely written about being in the band Limp Bizkit. And this is actually something that I try to tell my songwriter friends this. The way you can really, I mean, this isn't fact, but it's like something that I've always believed is the way to truly achieve infamy as a performer, if you're a songwriter, is you have to learn how to write songs that say your own name in it. And I give examples of like (laughs) Jay-Z, uh, he, he often refers to himself, Jigga and, mm-hmm, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you think of Fred Durst, like something like Limp Bizkit, where you're literally training people to sing your band name. Yeah, It's just constant, like constantly mm-hmm. cycling until mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm, stuck mm-hmm. in their heads. 
Uh, it's like an echo chamber designed to overindulge the listener on a delicious meal. It's like you're yeah. going to love it until basically you vomit from overindulgence. Yeah. And that is exactly where we landed here. The band doubled down on their fame and force-fed this album into America's throats. They released two lead-off singles, yeah. My Generation and Roland. Mm-hmm. Both had videos. Roland had its own dance. Yeah. Young women wearing wife beaters and red backwards hats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fred Durst shouting out Ben Stiller. It was nauseating and intoxicating and effective. This yeah, album yeah. is by all means terrible. <laughs> the production is great. Shout out to Terry Date, who gave us the GOAT album White Pony. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics are awful. There's no substance anywhere outside of, again, being a super famous band that feels like they're not liked enough. None of it made sense, and yet it was everywhere. An example of lyrics from Roland, to, to give my point. Now, I know y'all be loving this shit right here. L-I-M-P Biscuit is right here. People in the house, put your hands in the air, because if you don't care, then we don't care. One, two, three times two to the six. Makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Jones in for your fix of the Limp Biscuit mix. So where the fuck you at, punk? Shut the fuck up and back the fuck up while we fuck this track up. It's literally just describing like what's happening in front of him. Mm-hmm. It's, no, where's the content? Where's the substance? There is none. Yeah. It's, he's just looking in a mirror and he's like, I'm in Limp Bizkit. Uh, let me spell Limp Bizkit. Here's some weird <laughs> math. Here's some math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me say Limp Bizkit again yeah. and uh, fuck up and back up and we're going to fuck this up. Like, he's not even rhyming. He's just saying words that are the same word. Yeah. So two interesting takeaways from this record. The year 2000 obviously was the last year before 9-11 and thus represents a different time. Yeah. People were less sensitive, more trusting, and generally more relaxed as long as you were of a certain gender and ethnicity and also you weren't gay or possibly going to make anyone feel uncomfortable with their own heterosexuality. Mm. It was a time before social media and mostly the end of innocence for Americans who are now considered Generation X and ex-lineals. Yeah. The false lull of security would soon end, and Limp Bizkit shooting their video for Roland on top of the Twin Towers was most likely oh, the farewell f- we deserved. I forgot that that happened. All in all, Limp Bizkit caught a wave and did everything they could to ride it to maximum effort, and by God did they succeed. They would continue to make generally great decisions in the near future, including the full embrace of Napster, which resulted in a free tour that Napster sponsored that put Limp Bizkit in a 360-degree cage surrounded by its audience. Uh, Later in preparation for the next album, the band would host a reality show to replace guitarist Wes Borland, a spot that would eventually be filled by Fred Durst, because of course, attempting to play guitar. He loves... And still the album sold two million copies. Fucking miraculous. He he loves Kanye the way Kanye loves Kanye. (laughs) And and you know what? The reason we're doing this episode is because at one point you made the comment that Fred Durst was Kanye before Kanye. Absolutely. And we had to go and dive into that. So... With all of that said, where are you on this album? And go for your tracks. Okay. So in a few words, it's funny. I'm surprised that you're... It sounds like you're harsher on this record than I am. Uh, There is definitely... If I could... My three-word review is third act rot. Um, In in the moment, the wait for this album felt like an eternity. In retrospect, now I realize it was so rushed. It was meant to cash in on an already existing moment and maybe illustrate the band as kind of like these relentless craftsmen. Um, That doesn't mean I think the album is bad. I think the pacing is great. The attention to detail is there. Uh, Every track isn't a slam dunk, and even some good ones feel like sequels to previous cuts. Uh, Just kind of in passing, Hot Dog remains a very bad song, a horrible (laughs) introduction to this album. If people turned off this CD before that song finished and threw the album away, there's no disrespect to those people. Uh, I think my generation should have started this record. 
Uh, Full Nelson feels like an extension of I'm Broke. Get Your Groove On isn't bad, but it's definitely going back to the well of In Together now. Uh, It'll Be Okay sounds like, like an extension of The One, which calls back to Rearranged, and two of those three tracks are on the same album. Uh, I've never sat through the entire duration of Urban Assault Vehicle Edition of uh, Roland until today. And it's always <laughs> been hard to get through because the remix happens before the album ends in earnest, which makes it feel like it's meant to be consumed of a piece. It's kind of a, pretent- it's a pretentious moment, actually, for them. Um, I remember that Limp Biscuit marketed each song as equals, but that is just not the case in real life. The Urban Assault Vehicle feels like a remix. Um, even if the track came after the outro, it would feel like a tacked-on bonus cut, and you know how those go. Um, hey, sometimes, hey, what, you know, one of those track tacked-on bonus cuts gave us "Outside" by Aaron Lewis. Okay? Oh, okay, right so, on, right on, yeah, yeah, right on. Okay, so you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're inessential. Um, this one, this song, "Urban Assault Vehicle," goes on for six minutes and technically has seven verses. Hearing it today, twenty years removed, it's really strange. Hearing DMX, may he rest in peace. It really, it's really strange hearing him, or anybody for that matter, drop the N-bomb on a limp record. It was like seeing blood in a Pixar movie a little bit. As, as vile and crazy and disgusting Limp Biscuits music can be, it still doesn't feature the N-word almost ever. And, and it was, that, 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 was, that was wild. Um, but then also hearing Fred scream, he's like, Rough Riders, punk! Like... Okay, that that felt that felt like an anachronism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that a hate crime in a way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the the three songs that I think uh, really matter on this album. Um, the first one is the one. I actually just mentioned that in the, in the past or in passing here. Uh, so up until this point, I don't think Limp had really written anything resembling a love song. You know, they definitely did heartbreak, hating on crazy girls, you know, that sort of thing. But the, but love, no. Um, and I think this song has a good groove. The guitar lick is is good. Uh, the rhythm of Durst's vocal is a direct callback to Rearrange. I think you could layer the vocal over the music from Rearrange, and it would sync up perfectly. So that's kind of a problem. Um, but that said, the earnestness of the song, I think, is wonderful. I love when he says, maybe you're the reason I'm losing all my decency. I take that to mean this is someone in his life now who is good for him, you know, or that he has someone in his life now that's good for him, but he's self-sabotaging at every turn. Uh, he talks about his potential partner being a misconnection or someone who loves him but doesn't speak on it and suffers quietly. Um, it's not quite the same thing as like Isaac Brock writing "Float On," but I think it's in—I think it's in the territory. You know, Brock is troubled and grumpy and ironic, and Durst is definitely two of those things, plus kind of a general troublemaker. So this pivot to like a sincere love song is a nice piece of character development to me that didn't betray the band's core formula. It has all the rise and fall of other limp songs. It's still heavy. It's got the funky rhythms, the crunchy guitars. And I think the final chorus soars too. Uh, Then when the song seems over, a second piece of music takes us to like the serene kind of purgatory. Uh, Serene is another adjective I generally never expected to use to describe Limp Biscuit's music, but it applies here. Uh, it gets a little new agey feeling uh, in its attempt to illustrate a moment of tranquility, and uh, and and it should, I guess, because it's about Fred asking a lover to stay. But even then, in that moment, he can't resist the temptation to make the phrase "blow me away" into like this like single entente. Uh, that said, the other two tracks that I think are really good on here, 
take a look around. Um, when you think of this song, to you, is it a Limp Biscuit song in the world of Mission Impossible? Or is it a Mission Impossible song in the world of Limp Biscuit? I... They made such a big deal out of it. I, I can't say that I've really paid a lot of attention to this track for the, in the last 20 years. But Really? Yeah, but what I do remember, they made such a big deal out of it when they and Metallica both made a song for mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 2 in that summer, right? Yeah. And it was a cool song. It didn't sound like a Limp Biscuit song. It did sound like they were reaching to try to make it for Mission Impossible as opposed to Mission Impossible selecting a Limp Biscuit style mm-hmm. song. So it did sound like a Mission Impossible song written by Limp Biscuit. See, for me, it's the second thing. And uh, the same way I don't think Where Are You Going really has anything to do with Mr. Deeds. Uh, oh, yeah. how dare you? <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. What, are you just going to sneak that in and think that I, won't, that I won't say anything about that? How dare you, sir? I, I've said this before about D&B and what makes their music great. Uh, the thing I keep thinking of here is how confident and effortless this song feels. Obviously, I like it more than you do, It's, it's a, which I think is interesting. Uh, Durst, he doesn't write bars at the level of most Def or Aesop Rock, you know, but he has his own way of kind of delivering truth bombs. Uh, to me, they're not really truth bombs so much as they are like truth water balloons or something. Uh, he, he talks about the limp arc, you know, being the villains people love to hate. And for once, rather than take the shit personally, he talks about how he's new era committed and will go on being himself. You know, he's, he's imparting his own kind of, you know, troglodyte wisdom. Uh, you know, he says, stay on top, stay on top or life will kick you in the ass. He says, no one gets out of confrontation or taking the edge off the knife. He says he's troubled by the ultimate questions and how depressing that is and how he beats himself up about it. But ultimately, life is a lesson and you learn it when you're through. <laughs> the, you know, the, the the comfort, you know, the, the feeling of arrival, the, the joyful nihilism, he's experiencing it, and, and, it's, and it helps him understand why he and his band are considered monuments to bad taste. You know, the world, the world needs its villains. That's a very fitting description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in a way, I think this is Fred's homage to the bad guy Scarface monologue, you know, where Tony Montana, he tells people they need a villain so they can point at him and say, they're good, but without having to do anything. He tells him at least he's open and truthful about who and what he is. I always tell the truth, even when I lie, Tony Montana, Tony Montana says, which to me is a total Durstism. You know, it's like when, like, uh, you know, Fred has these head-scratching lyrics sometimes, like in uh, Unquestionable Truth, he says, do the math, you can laugh when I die. It sounds like it means something, but I don't think it means much of anything. And, and uh, you know, all these things kind of come together to make a tribute to kind of like the late golden, golden era biscuit. Uh, this album is good, but it portends the things that are that are, are about to go very bad, especially because Durst is starting to get comfortable. Uh, this song is like a final send-off to the golden years because we all know what happened next. Boylan, Boylan left the band again. Limp had a fruitless new guitarist contest. Then they just hired the guy from Snot, and then they fired him. There was no telling how many guitarists actually contributed to Results May Vary, and they scrapped far more material than they ever released. And, of course, the album was critically reviled. Anyway, I think the hooks are absolutely fucking pandemonium. There's that one moment at 3.30 where he's just like, uh, what does he do? Or, or it goes, it goes, 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 bump, 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 bump. You know, they just play it really hard in staccato. I think it's fucking sick. Uh, I really love that song. And meanwhile, the last track I want to talk about is Boiler. Um, Boiler is Limp's best song in the classic era. 
All of Durst's ex-girlfriend songs, Stuck, Counterfeit, Sour, Nookie, Don't Go Off Wandering, No Sex, they were all leading to this moment, this final, soaring, in my eyes, unimpeachably good, cathartic, and most importantly, heroic-sounding rager of a song. And it's all about how it feels to step away from bad love. For me, the opening is still hair-raising, 20 years later. The fade-in of the, uh, the, fade the guitar drone, Durst screaming like he's falling, the initial blast of the whole band in unison, to me, it's completely arresting. It gives the feeling that this band will never, ever falter. The lyrics are still a little juvenile, but they get at the heart of that feeling of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Generally, when people say they're putting their foot down, it's kind of an exhausted, you know, cliche. Here, the sentiment feels remarkably new. The same with when he says he's never coming back. People dump their problem partners all the time and say that shit. And, and, and of course, they don't mean it. But there's no way it can be a lie in the world of this song. R Rivers, Otto, Borland, they all sound too fierce. They sound too unified in this visceral expression of being fed up. And in particular, Durst keeps talking about how he has to do everything himself now, which makes me not necessarily think of him, but of every girl I've ever met who left a shit marriage with this, you know, some useless twat, you know, to become a toiling single mother who at least has her integrity at the end of the day. The bridge is, to me, is where it all really happens. Uh, Durst's voice reminds me of Travis Morrison's in Smemberment Plan. Travis has his own kind of weird, thin, wiry voice, and Durst has something similar. When he's angry, he roars kind of comically, and his normal rap delivery is mischievous, but it's just thin. You know, there's not a whole lot going on. When he sings, he sounds a little whiny and, and definitely like a parody of someone singing parody songs. Like, it reminds me of Weird Al Yankovic. But, but both Morrison and Durst somehow become a sonic emotional forces in the midst of their music. When, when Durst is in that third stanza and says, in, 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 I'm talking about in the bridge, and he says, the hiding from you is, he's like, he's like, it's just done, you know, like real high and loud. Uh, he, you know, he sounds like he can barely contain his suffering anymore. It's just erupting out of him without warning now. And to me, that is just a, such a pure state of trauma to be in. I, I've lived it and I've seen it. There comes a point where you can no longer express yourself subtly when dealing with oppressive forces or rather the emotional damage from that oppression leaves one in a state that no longer allows for subtlety. And yet... Well, well said, by the way. Like, uh, as, I, as someone listening to you talking, that's, that's a very um, thoughtful statement. I think that's, that's something to... I, I like caught that and thought, whoa, that's pretty, I appreciate pretty that. nice. Uh, and, and yet this song is also... It's carefully crafted. I think it's beautiful even in its, in its, in, in its expression of these feelings. Revisiting it, I forgot about the denouement. You know, it's only like 20 seconds, but there's these twinkling guitars, this slow decrescendo of the bass, uh, you know, and then the guitars start looping as they fade. It's all very patiently built. Of all the songs Limp has written, this is probably the one that is most just like unimpeachably good, while also remaining loyal to their kind of initial identity as like these clown princes of, of rap metal. Um, it reminds me of like November Rain from the 80s hair era or misery, or, or misery Business from like the pop punk era. Like you may not like the genres that gave birth to these songs, but I feel like you have to give them their due. Um, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Back to you, brother. So this will be quick for me because, uh, you know, uh, I won't hide it. I, I, I see from a distance, especially with the sort of gift of time, uh, how rushed this album was and how Fred had sort of 
again, doubled down on his belief that the real way into like cementing his place in culture was to just constantly kind of like, almost like, I don't want to say be like self-masturbatory about mm. just his band in general, but it was it was very self-celebratory uh, and self-referential. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a business decision. I don't I don't think it was an accident because he did it a lot. Um, but I do remember even in 2000 when I was, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't love this record. I did not love it. I thought that there was not a lot of substance to it. Um, the... The singles are obviously like professionally done and sound great, but other than that, I, I don't remember. Even then, I remember thinking like eh, this: I, I think they're done. Like I, in my heart, I kind of understood. I, I saw them as a band, just sort of like not having the same impact moving forward. I didn't know how they could. Uh, but the three, the three tracks that I think are the most interesting, and again, not what I would consider the best, but the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one being "Hot Dog," <laughs> simply for the audacity of the lyric. Yeah. If I say fuck two more times, that's 46 fucks in this fucked up rhyme. Yeah. There's more math. There's some more, you know. <laughs> more math. Fred, Fred's he's really, giving you math. Really, Fred, he's really up in his math game in this, uh, <laughs> in this ridiculous <laughs> record. And, you know, it's interesting, too. Um, it's interesting how the, even just a few years back in $3 Bill Y'all, the first four songs from the record might be their strongest block of four songs right mm-hmm. but in w- without you know here nor there it's at least a very solid way to start the record yeah this one starting with hot dog it just missed yeah and, and you know and, and i know that uh there was there's more to it obviously they had kind of taken that i i forget what the name of the song was they used to call it where they had that same refrain from the nine inch nail song like the you want to mm-hmm. fuck me like an animal mm-hmm. they they play it on the family values tour tape that i saw in mm-hmm. 1998 mm-hmm. uh it might actually be called cambodia i I'm, mm-hmm. i don't quite remember but mm-hmm. f- the whatever direction whatever he was trying to accomplish was saying like the the counting the word fuck up mm-hmm. until the last word which is like mm-hmm. ah, miss me with all that uh <laughs> second track i think is really cool is my way um mm-hmm. i think it's a cool sample and the song again finds a space in a melodic soundscape and never loses control uh, maybe one of the only songs where Durst isn't rhyming the words biscuit with biscuit. Like mm-hmm. this is one of the only ones where he kind of backs off uh, and doesn't just like self-obsess over being in Limp Biscuit mm-hmm. and remind you, the listener, that you're listening to Limp Biscuit. He just is actually singing a song. And then the third one, you know, got to give it its due is Boiler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've always thought this was a cool song, mostly in part because of the music video. Um, it's like this weird amalgamation of animation and live action. Uh, it's one of the first instances we have of Durst trying to sing, and uh, the verses are pretty weak in regard to the rapping. But there's a deep, there's a deep yearning here where it seems like the band is trying to find a way to grow. And this is what I, this is in my heart and like my instincts say that if they had probably put a little bit more time into songwriting, it seems like this might have been where the band started to grow. Um, this is better songwriting. This is real songwriting, mm-hmm. which it. Well, you seemed- can feel them reaching. I think, yeah. Reaching really, uh, and at that, and because of that, I feel like, especially on this song, you can see the talent of the band is outgrowing Fred Durst. Yeah. Um, because he does not hold his own. I mean, the screaming part, yeah. Like, he, he, he offers something very unique in the way that he, 
yells. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be one of the most important elements of the Limp Biscuit package mm-hmm. is Fred's kind of like vocal um, push. But the, the quieter parts of this song don't suit him at all. And it's a good song. And like, mm-hmm. it, it, especially the music of it is so good. Yeah. So there's that moment where I'm listening to it and I'm thinking like, I can kind of see here where the band is probably like outgrowing Fred. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song's kind of out of place on this record. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more contemplative than the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Uh, save, of course, for Durst's vocal delivery, which I think is right in the wheelhouse of the other mm-hmm. uh, lacking delivery. Um, but with that being said, I mean it. It was the this was the end of the. They did fly. They did fly too close to the sun. That's yeah. the best way to describe yeah, it. Yeah. You know, and you, you talked about the band outgrowing uh, Fred, and I think. I mean, Borland. Wes, Wes was gone quickly yeah, after that. Yeah, Wes. When and when Wes left, he said, "Creatively, I don't know how much more I can get out of this project. So instead, I'm going to be doing it solely for the money." You know, and um, and I guess what happened is he discovered he he did need this band, you know, more than he needed, oh, you know, to be on his own. Sure. But 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 the thing is, is that that is that is such an honest sentiment, you know, uh, for him, to, you know, to say that, especially because. You know, at least to the press, F- Fred greeted it with aplomb. He said, "Well, okay, we're you know we've amicably parted ways and everything." Um, but, but my point is, is that he um, uh, it, it ties back to just what you said. You, you can feel the band getting better than Fred, and so maybe, you know, uh, I mean, Borland was the guy who took action on it. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Otto and Rivers and Lethal, you know, weren't necessarily thinking of going anywhere. Yeah, but the interesting thing here is like. I say better in a music sense, in mm-hmm. a songwriting sense, but Fred at this time was an incredibly savvy business person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this record sold a lot of yeah. fucking yeah. records. And you don't get there by accident. I don't care yeah. who you are. You don't stumble into the 17th highest selling first week of a record of all time. Well, and, and even results may vary, right? Considered, you know, a critical flop. Still multi-platinum. Well, well in that one song... Um, the cover he did behind blue eyes uh-huh. it was still on the radio everywhere yep. at back then and i remember thinking well you know i i like i never bought that record i listened to a little bit of it i definitely yes. bought it i bought uh, i bought all of their albums up to like i think gold cobra if okay. gold cobra is the one that came out in like 2010 no yeah. um as 08 i think the there was the one where all the names of the songs were like the this the that oh unquestionable truth oh uh, yeah part 1 yeah part 1 <laughs> Which I love, actually. I fucking love that. Do you record. really? Yeah, I think it's incredible. I don't remember enough I mean, of it to like have a feeling about it either yeah. way. I I wanted to cheat and pull songs from that album instead of Chocolate Starfish, but I wasn't going to do you like that. I appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, but but anyway, I just remember feeling like uh, they were still everywhere after that happened, and uh, and the feeling was Durst was going to get paid, you know, and still remain part of the cultural lexicon somehow. You know, and even now, like like that Patrico interview, that Patrico interview, Patrico says to Fred, "You're the reason why I'm here. Your music got me into heavy rock, and it got and it got me into wanting to be. I think the guy's a radio DJ or whatever. You know, and the guy Patrico spoke to Fred as a fan, not as not as a professional in the you know in in the business of music and radio. So." Um, and and Fred still has that pull again, like the paparazzi. Man, Google the paparazzi videos sometime; they're weird because the 
because they're they're literally stopping him on like the streets of LA and trying to talk to him. And Fred is like, he's bothered by it. Well, but you you but, use but, the but, term over it, and that's I would say yeah, that yeah, that's yeah. the best way to describe yeah, yeah. how he generally yeah. presents himself. And yet at the same time, he he can't totally back away because he knows it's an opportunity to record or engage with people directly, sure, without a filter of much, you know, without. And it's not like he's acting crass or weird or anything like that. He's just answering the questions. He's doing the work, um, and that's kind of what he's become, as far as I can tell, in the last not just him, but the band as a whole, they've be, they've settled into their roles as guys who, uh, I don't want to use the term nostalgia act, but they've definitely settled into a role where like, they're just professional musicians, you know? Yeah. And, and there are, there are festivals that are still flying them out. Mm-hmm. There are festivals that they're still performing at. Mm-hmm. I just Googled a recent performance that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was terrible, Yeah, but they're still doing it and mm-hmm. there are still people that are going to show up. I mean, like they're, they are nostalgia act at this point and why yeah. the hell not? They earned it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you don't get to, you don't do what you did in the nineties and just be a constant presence in the, in the pop culture lexicon with, without being rewarded with basically residual instant residuals. Anytime you play a show 20 years later. Sure. So let's take this home. Yeah. On the back half of this, let's discuss the cultural impact and just kind of give it a little bit more of a, of a gloss over. Mm-hmm. And, um, for me, the real takeaway from this band's incredible three-year run is really equally how business-savvy Fred Durst was and how talented the band was. Uh, Durst had all the elements of a pop star, a signature look with the red hat, mm-hmm. several anthemic songs, an appeal to outcasts, an obsession with his own brand, a thirst for power, appreciation of the high life, and above all else, an intangible foresight into where the future of pop culture would shift. Yeah. I recall watching one of the MTV award shows when Christina Aguilera, who was still very much a pop princess, had a performance that was suddenly interrupted by Fred Durst coming out of the audience, taking out a microphone, and performing for maybe one minute alongside Aguilera in a crossover moment that would baffle rock fans and proceed a step-by-step formula for success by about a decade. Right? Fans were outraged that Durst would cross the line, so to speak, mm-hmm. from the sanctity of rock music into the soulless void of pop, because stuff like that mattered back then. Yeah, uh, people really cared about the integrity of the art. Not until, and not until Lil Wayne performed on Destiny Child's Soldier did the idea of crossing genres for profit even seem possible. Mm-hmm. In 1999, success was a coveted thing that you protected. Unlike the year of our Lord, 2021, Mm -hmm. where success is simply awarded to the highest bidder. Nowadays, your fame goes hand in hand with how many collaborations, sponsorships, and joint records you are asked to be a part of. Because after all, if you weren't the best, McDonald's would not want to name a sandwich after you. (laughs) Durr saw the potential and saw that he and Christina Aguilera were playing politics in the way that real politicians do now fooling the lower-level plebeians into thinking it's left versus right, as opposed to the real teams being those above and those below. Yeah. Durst saw this for what it was, more chances for fame, and the world simply wasn't ready for that type of ambition yet. And I think his second greatest contribution to pop culture was embracing Napster. He saw the merit in free music 15 years before it became the standard. At the time, artists like Metallica and Dr. Dre went after their own fans for having the gall to listen to a song without paying full price for it every time. Mm-hmm. Regular college students would have their apartments raided by police and face fines of hundreds of thousands of dollars per song found on home computers. It's fucking bullshit. 
the fans saw the situation for what it was, millionaires kicking their own fans for more millions. Limp Bizkit embraced the complete opposite approach and went on a free tour sponsored by Napster. It was light years ahead of the rest of the culture, and to this day I'm shocked at how Durst was able to make such a good business decision. Even if it was, again, at least a decade too soon, it was like Durst could see the future. Yeah. Yeah, he'll, um, as I've said more than once, he will always remind me of Kanye, uh, you know, the public meltdowns, saying dumb shit in the press, and yet also surprisingly able to, like, play along. Uh, I'm reminded of, like, when when Kanye was on tour with Jay-Z for Watch the Throne. I mean, every article or review I read about it made it sound like it was really more Jay-Z's show. And Kanye was happy to let it be that way. He, his, he was, the ego was actually not overtaking the arrangement, you know? Um, and, you know, F- Fred, again, he's become this person again, who's actually a bit more well-behaved, predictable, um, and, and okay with where he is. And, um, and yet at the same time, both the, both of them have that they're savants of what they do. You talk about, how Fred was just ahead of his time when it came to like thinking about how to make the industry work for him, you know, and he was basically failing until he wasn't, you know, because like if you watch like the, the, the biography programs that are like on MTV and VH1, you know, that are like on YouTube, they talk about how he was basically just fucking up over and over and over again, you know, through high school, through the army or the Navy. I can't remember which, I think it's the Navy through the Navy, through his first marriage, you know, uh, everything just kept going wrong, and um, he just kept at it until he saw an opportunity that, that he needed, which was giving that guy from Corn a really bad tattoo. But he got him to listen to the demo, and then one thing led to another. Um, when I talk about the legacy of this band, it's difficult to – it does feel a little bit like it occurred in a vacuum. Um, you know, new Metal definitely feels like the hair rock of its time or the, the emo slash pop punk of its time. Um I don't think it'll experience a renaissance again. Uh, and I guess I'm glad for that. Uh, you know, there are out, there are musicians, iconic musicians that have far better reputations uh, that always seem to have another fucking ripoff band coming out, you know, like, uh, like Led Zeppelin always has, everybody's always trying to go do heavy blues again. You know, there's always a new band like that coming out, whether it's Alabama Shakes or I can't even think of another the one. one right now. The the one that sounds like uh, Greta Van Fleet. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it's not even on my radar, right. but but I'm not surprised that it exists, and I have no interest in it because it'll be it, all it's going to do is remind me of Zeppelin, you know, uh, who I love. If you don't but, if you don't know who Greta Van Fleet is, you have no idea how accurate that statement. Okay, well there you go, there you go. So Zach, I I, I perfectly Zach Zach our producer is nodding in agreement. That's okay, yeah, yeah. So I I just totally reviewed Greta Van Fleet without even needing to know what the music <laughs> is about because that's what happens in the music industry sometimes, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, you know, nostalgia is a powerful thing, so I'm glad that Limp Biscuit is like back. Um, and I hope to see him again sometime. I'm missing out on the opportunity this year. Um, but, um, you know, according to what I read, there's supposed to be like this permeation of new metal influence and new bands in the last 10 years, uh, particularly like in mumble rap. Uh, and but these are just things that are not on my radar. Nothing against those genres. I'm not trying to make a, any sort of evaluation. It just hasn't been where I've been in the last 10 years. I've actually uh-huh. seen in groups, and it's really interesting in that it's almost like an ironic embrace of it in mm-hmm. um younger female artists mm, are okay. now there's a like for instance poppy i don't know if you're aware of oh poppy yeah i've heard of her. yeah yeah uh she 
I know her more as a meme. R- exactly. But, yes, but, but, I know but she's a recently released like a new metal album. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, there's another there's another artist who I really love. I forget the name, but she she released a song called like Where's My Jewel. And it's a new metal song. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, I mean, think of the name of that. It's like embracing the overall silliness. As in J-U-U-L? As in where's oh, my jewel? Like okay. she, the whole song is like, I dropped my jewel. Did you steal it? And then it's like, where's my jewel? And like her, oh, it's, uh, it's, that's, it's I, I fantastic. Can't decide that, I can't decide it's, if that's awesome or not. But it's, it's amazing. I think I, I think I do think it's awesome. It's yeah. amazing. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to quickly find um, the name of this artist real quick. Where's my... There was a band I saw. Uh, Lil, Lil Mariko. Lil, Lil Mariko. Right on. L-I-L-M-A-R-I-K-O. And she she's just another one of these sort of like young female art like artists mm-hmm. who's just fully embracing uh, the irony of new metal music. And mm-hmm. it, it's so creative and it, I, I, it so rocks. It, that reminds me of Olivia Rodrigo, who is kind of embracing the pop punk thing. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily ironically, just putting like a more modern spit on it. You know, a, a softer pastel, you know, uh, R, sometimes R&B oriented, you know, spin on it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, everything happens in cycles, right? Uh, th- th- there was a band I saw I was when I was bartending for Aztec Theater. I would, you know, uh, bartend at some of the heavier rock acts. And there was a band I encountered called Issues that were like, they were sort of like an emo core pop punk thing. It's not but, an homage to Korn's fourth album? No, no, no. no. Okay. But, uh, but the aesthetic, though, was that like street uh you know the urban like like urban suburbanite white boy you know i i want to say actually the ethnicity of the group is actually pretty diverse but what they had was i'll never forget they had a huge uh banner behind their behind their band and it looked just like the type of spray spray can art that that durst was doing in the late 90s uh, down to like the characters having these long bodies mm-hmm. and they're kind of looking this way and that, you know, and and um, uh, and just the rich colors. I was like looking at it going, dude, I feel like Fred Durst drew this for them, even though he probably has no association with them. Sure. Um, but it was, you know, other than that, though, I'm not seeing the influence of this music elsewhere. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't, wouldn't like to see it or anything like that. It's just hard to make an evaluation. I, I, I ga- I'm guessing kind of, uh, again, kind of the same way. Like, like, um, you know, how many bands do you hear that sound like rush? You know, how many bands do you hear that sound like Co- twisted sister? You know, Coheed <laughs> and Cambria kind of took yeah. on the rush. So they did. Okay. See, that's yeah. another band I never in listened fact, to. I'll, I'll even remember when I saw Coheed in concert in like 2006. Okay. So interesting. It was a, a mother and her daughter young girl and mm-hmm. the mother was already kind of gray on mm-hmm. in the hair and mm-hmm. she was wearing a rush t-shirt oh okay so really like direct through like, line yeah, yeah. And, and it was cool to see two generations of fans one mm-hmm. because it reminded her of rush the other mm-hmm. one was just like a huge fan of coheed by the way that guitar the, the singer of coheed what, what's his name um whatever his name claudio mm-hmm. best mm-hmm. guitar player i've ever seen live no dude. shit this okay. dude was playing the guitar with his teeth Oh, I mean, he's he's just a true showman. Uh, I'll always say that anytime Coheed yeah, yeah. comes up, best guitar player I've ever seen in a, in a in real life. So so and and I guess this conversation basically leads me to uh, you know an inevitable thesis for myself, which is that for for all of my loving music, and I guess for yours as well, there's still just tons of stuff that we have 
no idea about. We and we try to stay on top of it, but of course it's. I don't try to stay on top of it anymore. Well, well, I I do actually, man. I, every day I look at Pitchfork to see what's new, and and then I I have an ongoing chat with my siblings and their friends about about what they like, and we're just constantly sending links back and forth. But there's so much, you know. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. It's the guy who created he. This guy created a podcast called The Life Well Wasted. Um, he was a games journalist. And when I followed him on Twitter, he said in he said in the year of streaming and or in the era of streaming, this is in 2010, 2011, 2012, maybe he says, listening to music online is like putting your ear to a fire hose. And I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's just impossible to keep up with it all. Well, so the question, how does a band go from the grimy club gigs in Jacksonville, Florida, to being the biggest band in the world in less than one presidential term? Preparation, timing, ambition. And being wildly fueled by narcissism and the inherent advantages given to straight white males in the late 90s. We love you, Fred. <laughs> We'd really do, Fred. We would not have spoken about you at this length if we did not love you. Uh, and so we've come to the end of our exploration of Limp Biscuit's history and cultural significance. For more Deep Dive Guys content, you can find us on Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Remember, I'm Nick. And I'm Adam. You keep listening, we keep talking, and most importantly... Keep on rolling, baby. (laughs) 